Good evening, I'm Lister Sinclair, and this is Ideas on George Grant. Let me quote who would be very high authority for me, Mozart. His account of what it is to compose is an account of being given wholes. He talks about a composition being given to him all at one moment, you know, all in one look, as he says. Philosophy is the extreme human presumption of claiming to be open to the whole, isn't it? Now, I think that openness to the whole arose for me from the passion of astonishment. I just was astonished by the world, that's all. George Grant, patriot, philosopher, teacher. Born in Toronto on November 13, 1918, to a distinguished Canadian family. Educated at Upper Canada College, Queen's and Oxford. Head of the Department of Philosophy at Dalhousie in the 1950s. Head of the Department of Religion at McMaster in the 1960s and 70s. Now lives in retirement in Halifax. I still remember his, his first entrance into class. He came walking in uh, with a rather uh, disheveled outfit. You know, but then when he turned to the class, he spoke with tremendous clarity, dignity, almost defiance. And I sort of thought of him as a member uh, of an aristocracy, most of whose members had been recently guillotined. You know? <laughs> he was the remnant, as it were. During a career that spans four decades, George Grant has usually been in the public eye. Through the CBC and popular magazines, He's addressed issues ranging from Canadian nationalism to abortion in a pungent and witty prose that has made him beloved of many Canadians outside the universities. But always at the heart of his concerns has been philosophy, the love of wisdom. I just went to hear Farrer lecture on Descartes. And I fell in love. You know, this is what had been so deeply absent in North America. Somebody who really had given his mind to the study of philosophers in the past. What George Grant asks of us in the name of philosophy is that we question the accepted liberal pieties and platitudes of our age. Above all, he draws our attention to the ways in which technology determines our relationship to the world. In the coming to be of technological society, certain things were found, but many things of great importance and illumination and happiness for human beings were lost. George Grant's first intimations of that loss came in the 1960s. Provoked by the fall of the government of John Diefenbaker, he wrote his now famous Lament for a Nation, a work of prophetic power and insight which changed a whole generation's view of Canada. 
Grant's Lament as the starting point for tonight's program, the first of three broadcasts about the ideas of this distinguished Canadian, written and presented by David Cayley. Our program opens on the scene in Ottawa on the night of February the 4th, 1963, following the resignation of the Minister of National Defence. This dramatic day on Parliament Hill began with a news conference at which Mr. Harkness read to reporters a copy of his letter of resignation to Prime Minister John Diefenbaker. My dear Prime Minister, for over two years you have been aware that I believe nuclear warheads should be supplied to the four weapon systems we have acquired which are adapted to their use. It has become quite obvious... Outside the, the House, Mr. Days, Pearson was questioned by newsmen. Mr. Pearson, have you any comment on the resignation of Defence Minister Harkness? Well, our position and the motion we moved of no confidence to support that position is that the uh, government has lost the confidence of the Canadian people because it's indecisive, it's confused, and it's not giving leadership. And we feel that the events of the last week, especially... On the night of February 4th, 1963, the minority government of John Diefenbaker was voted out of office. The issue was whether Canada should accept nuclear warheads for the Bomark missiles which the government had already acquired from the United States. To many Canadians of the day, already disappointed with the Diefenbaker government, its vacillations on this question seemed further proof of its unfitness to govern. George Grant saw the situation quite differently. He saw John Diefenbaker as a tragic hero, undone by his own flaws, to be sure, but still attached to a noble ideal. I admired in Diefenbaker just the apotheosis of straight loyalty. You know, loyalty without great intelligence, but loyalty. Most people have to live by loyalties, don't they? to a deep sense. And Diefenbaker was, to, you know, for all his craziness, he was full of this. He gave me once his account of, um, of his meeting with Kennedy. You know, and Diefenbaker, one thing you may be sure, Diefenbaker would exaggerate but never lie. You know, he was a good Baptist. He would exaggerate but not lie. Kennedy said, you had to take the NORADs. And Diefenbaker said... Um, well, we're not going to. And Kennedy said, you can't get loaders for wheat to China in this conversation. You know, we'll cut off loaders and you'll, we'll cut off you selling wheat to China. And Diefenbaker said, uh, we have a loader company. And Kennedy said, it's American-owned. And Diefenbaker said, we'll take it over, you know. <laughs> and finally, he said to Kennedy, you're not in America now, Kennedy. This defiance of the United States, one Diefenbaker grants admiration, and more than that, his love. He didn't become blind to Diefenbaker's faults, the neglect of Quebec, the sabotage of the CBC, the personal vanity. A whole chapter of Lament for a Nation would be devoted to this dreary catalogue. It was just that in Diefenbaker's fall, Grant saw something more, the fate of a people, and not just a man. Lament for a Nation was published in 1965. These were some of Grant's comments in subsequent interviews with the CBC. I wrote this book when, to me, the most terrible thing had happened, the bringing in of these atomic weapons into Canada. And I was, 
I thought this was disgraceful, the way the Americans had, had been able to bring in the atomic weapons into Canada. I had hoped that Canada could be a country in the world that wouldn't serve the purposes of any empire. You know, because I, I think that empires are terrible affairs. The extension of power, which, which belongs to humanity by nature, is something that must be resisted. And I thought that Canadians were... The I think one has to remember the, the degree of pressure that Kennedy put on. And one of the things that, that brought Diefenbaker down was the, was the supreme acceptance in, Can uh, in Canada of, this, of, of Kennedy as, as a noble man. You know, this image got across. But Kennedy was, had said and stated clearly that his allies, as he called them, were going to be brought into line. And I think he decided, after he came up here and tried to get the Canadians to join the OAS, and they wouldn't, he decided to bring Diefenbaker into line. Now, I don't think Diefenbaker... I just see Diefenbaker rather as E.E. E. Cummings, big Olaf. You know, in his agony, big Olaf cries out, there is some shit I will not eat. The issue I was taking the defense crisis... I mean, the very foundation of Canada was to be something different from the United States, was to build a society that was more ordered, that was more reasonable, that wasn't so full of illusions, that wasn't so full of violence, that wasn't so full of dreams as the Americans. Now, these days, where it's great to be... Diefenbaker did have and did represent a kind of solid residual nationalism that existed in the country districts and small towns of this country. And he really believed in it. The thing about Diefenbaker is, you know, when he makes me mad and he seems stupid, then he makes such great enemies. The slick, the wealthy, the greedy, the cozy little journalists on the Globe and Mail hate him. There must be something, you know, I find it often hard to see the good in him. But, you know, when I see his enemies, I like him because his enemies are so revolting. Lament for a Nation did little to change the minds of Grant's contemporaries, either about Canada or about Diefenbaker. But amongst the younger generation of Canadians, its effect was revolutionary. I was one of the students, members of the Conservative Club on campus that was anti-Diefenbaker and that supported the American stand in the Cuban Missile Crisis and, and uh, was angry with Diefenbaker because he didn't line up behind the... Americans, and after I read it, and I was, you know, I was completely convinced by it. I mean, it can totally turn me, my attitude to Diefenbaker around uh, 180 degrees. I first encountered George Grant, as a whole lot of people of my generation would have, by reading uh, Lament for a Nation. And I read it at a time when you could get a laugh at a, a party by saying the three syllables, four syllables, Diefenbaker. So reading Lament for Nation, I just couldn't understand the mindset that it came out of. And yet there was something in the in the, that long essay, Lament for Nation, that, that spoke to parts of me that I didn't know existed and I didn't know uh, what they would be. So it was a bit of an enigma to me. At a time when I was becoming a socialist and becoming a Canadian, this work which combined a profound and radical criticism of American imperialism and of liberalism with a strong defense of Canadian autonomy and Canadian identity 
helped me to bring uh, my own mind together around these two poles of uh, Canada and socialism. Uh, I know that Grant himself was not a socialist, but the, the sort of impact that he had on me, I think, was uh, repeated many times over uh, among other people on the Canadian left. Gad Horowitz teaches political theory at the University of Toronto. Before him, you heard poet Dennis Lee and University of Guelph professor William Christian. For them, for me, and for many others, Lament for a Nation was a first introduction to the idea that there might be something worth remembering in Canada's British past, that this past might contain some nobler possibility than the free enterprise liberalism of the United States. And even as Grant was lamenting the passing of this possibility, younger Canadians were finding in his public persona a kind of model of how it might be realized. What's interesting about Grant, he's like a prototype for us. Canadians have, have this dream of, of being Americans and yet, yet somehow being saved from being American. And Grant sort of shows how it can be done. Grant is unknown outside of Canada, right? Even though he's, he's close uh, to the thought of Leo Strauss, he hasn't become a well-known thinker in the United States. And he's unknown in England, and he's unknown in France. He's unknown in all the places in which great men are known. Right? And he's chosen that for himself. Not only does he refrain from doing that, he even moves back from Ontario to Nova Scotia. There's a kind of genuineness of spirit that is evinced there that, that I think is more important than the footnotes and bibliographies of the publications. Uh, he's a public man. This is it. I mean, uh, it, throughout his career, he's combined the, the personae of the scholar, the philosopher, and the public man, the citizen, the model. Extremely unusual and yet so prototypical for English Canada. If he hadn't existed, we would have had to invent him, <laughs> to coin a phrase. George Grant was born at the end of World War I and grew up on the Toronto campus of Upper Canada College, an exclusive private school for boys where his father was the headmaster. His maternal grandfather, Sir George Robert Parkin, knighted in 1920 for his services to the British Empire, had also been headmaster at UCC. His paternal grandfather, George Monroe Grant, was a Presbyterian minister and for many years the principal of Queen's University. It was a formidable family. My father was a Nova Scotian who'd grown up in Kingston, Ontario, and was essentially a very gentle, strong scholar who I think above all was ruined by the First World War of 1914. I mean, he was ruined physically, he was terribly wounded. I don't mean ruined as a human being, but it, I think for these people who'd grown up in the great era of progress, you know, to suddenly come across the Holocaust of, of the trenches, it was just a, terrible. I think the, 
the first war was a very great impression to my father. That takes us back, in a sense, to your grandfather. Yes, yes. In what kind of ethos would your father have grown up? Well, my, my grandfather was just at the high point in Canadian life when Protestantism and liberalism were identified. Do you know what I mean? And they could really believe it, you know, at the end of the 19th century. I mean by a liberal, somebody who believes man's essence is his freedom. Man is free and is going to make the world, isn't he? You know, he went on the first survey of the CPR across Canada. He, they really were confident that this kind of liberal Protestantism would rule the world. And I think on the whole, the liberalism came first with my grandfather. But you see, in that, that generation, to become a minister of the Protestant church really meant something. And many of the ambitious did it for that reason. I think part of my father's great gentleness is that he had had a very dominating father, which led him to be much gentler with people. What were the consequences of his experiences in the war as far as his, his outlook was concerned? Well, if you're talking of practical consequences, he gave a lot of his life to enormous support of the League of Nations, to see all, all the, you know, all this kind of thing. He sent money to Mr. Words, Woodsworth, who was head of the, the CCF, do you see? He, which from his world wouldn't have been as natural to him. It led my father into a lot of reform. You see, optimism in reform. I have described the great, sane, secular liberalism in which I was brought up. And I'm sure the Second War just broke that for me. You know, the Second War was to me an unqualified disaster. I was a pacifist and the first thing I did which was the great experience for me. I went down, was in charge of a large part of the Surrey docks while they were being bombed by the Germans. And I saw, you know, I saw a lot of people killed. I dragged people out, you know, I, I saw this in detail, do you see? Because in a way I was ashamed of being a pacifist and wanted to be involved showing that it wasn't from fear that I rejected the war. So I was very much involved in the violence of the bombing of London. I was right at the heart of it. Then when the Russians came into the war, remember in 41, it meant England wasn't bombed anymore. It, it all turned on this terrible destruction of the Slavs. Therefore, I knew there was going to be no more bombing. So I was looking for something I could do, and I went into the Merchant Navy and then got TB. When I found I had TB, and they wouldn't take me on board a ship at this point, you see, because you went in for a test and they found that I was all no good on this side, in the lungs, 
I just ran away. I was living poetically, and I just went and got a job on a farm. Now, this led me to be, to use the old-fashioned language, to be converted. I just remember going off to work one morning, and I remember just walking through a gate. I got off my bicycle and walked through a gate, and I believed in God. I just knew that was it for me. And that came to me very suddenly and very quickly. I don't mean that in any very dramatic sense. I just mean it as the case. Because I'd come from a world where the idea of, of I don't like to call it the idea of God, but where God had not been taken terribly seriously. Do you see what I mean? It, religion was something, was good for society and kept people in order and thing, but was really, if you explored it intellectually, it was BS. Do you see what I mean? It was nonsense. And this was a prodigious moment for me. This experience of going through the gate and knowing, can you say what the nature of the knowing was at that moment? What it was that you knew? I think it was a kind of affirmation, beyond time and space there is order. For me it was an affirmation about what is an affirmation that ultimately there is order. And that, may, that, mean, that is what one means by God, isn't it? That ultimately the world is not a maniacal chaos. I think that's what the affirmation was in some ways. Grant's conversion was to prove the central experience of his life, the pivot on which all his thinking would ultimately turn. It led him first into the study of philosophy and theology. Before the war, Grant had won a Rhodes Scholarship from Queens. Now he took it up again and went to study at Oxford, where he came under the influence of teachers like the Christian Platonist Austin Farrer. I just went to hear Farrer lecture on Descartes, and I fell in love. I knew this is why I had come to Oxford. You know, he, I mean, I suddenly heard a great philosopher like Descartes, being wonderfully articulated. You know, this is what had been so deeply absent in North America. Somebody who really had given his mind to the study of philosophers in the past. He just taught me how to read, and it was just, it was just wonderful for me because it sort of gave me an entrance, how to do it, do you see? Then at the same time, there's this, where indeed I met my wife, C.S. Lewis, you know, the person who's written children's books and other things, had a club called the Socratic Club, and he had people down every week giving the reasons against Christianity or the reasons for it in, in art, very articulate form, and then there would be a debate afterwards. Well, I learned an immense amount from these. You know, Lewis was a wonderful human being, enormously articulate. You know, as his writing is, seems very simple and clear, so his speech was like that, very, you know, he looked like a great big English butcher, you know, uh, you know, who might be selling meat behind a counter. And he just spoke like a butcher, or wrote, you know, just direct, 
clear, lucid stuff. And this was a wonderful part of my education. You know, there are some people who are naturally philosophic. I needed all this to, you know, to gradually come to think about these questions. I still remember his, his first entrance into class. He came walking in uh, with a rather uh, disheveled outfit. You know, but then when he turned to the class, he spoke with tremendous clarity, dignity, almost defiance. And I sort of thought of him as a member uh, of an aristocracy, most of whose members had been recently guillotined. You know? <laughs> he was the remnant, as it were. The class was George Grant's Philosophy One at Dalhousie University in Halifax. The time was the mid-50s. Louis Greenspan, now a professor at McMaster University and a longtime friend and colleague of Grant's, was 17 years old. I look at Dalhousie in those years as an enchanted world, you know. The curriculum of the university and the structure of student-teacher relations was quite different than it is now. You met the professors, or your classroom was really three places. This was so with George. First, it was the classroom itself. It was also the Lord Nelson Tavern, where we drank uh, uh, beer and talked philosophy. And then uh, it was in uh, uh, Sheila and George's home, you know, which was a kind of salon for philosophy students and, uh, and so on. And I marvel to this day, they had six young children. And still, whenever people came into the house, long conversations about philosophy would, in which they would both participate, uh, you know. So it was a kind of a magic world. And another thing that was different was the numbers of people from practical life who were in the uh, classroom. You know, there were politicians who would attend George's seminars at uh, night. I remember especially one socialist politician, a very saintly man, who was trying to bring the, the CCF message to uh, Halifax at that time. He would come into the, into the seminar, which met once a week at George's home. He would sit down. Five minutes after the seminar began, he would uh, fall into a heavenly slumber. And then, by a miracle, he would wake up five minutes before the seminar ended and say, you did it again, George. And, and George would beam, <laughs> you know, and nod. <laughs> anyway, those were the circumstances of my first meeting with George. The great influence on Grant's thinking in those days was the German philosopher Hegel. Grant's reading of Hegel had persuaded him that history is the progress of reason, and this led him to see in modern life the conditions for universal liberation. Grant's hope was particularly with the young. He expressed it in this remarkable passage from Philosophy in the Mass Age, a series of lectures later published, which he gave over CBC Radio in 1958. Reason as domination over nature has freed man from his enslavement to nature. And this is not only in the economic sense that people who are freed from the necessity of hard work have the leisure to pursue ends beyond the practical. It is also that an industrial society breaks down the old natural forms of human existence in which people traditionally found the meaning for their lives. In such a situation, many persons are driven by the absence of these traditional forms to find meaning elsewhere. 
Anybody who sees much of the young people of our big cities will recognize what I mean. They are freed from the pressing demands of scarcity, as also they are freed from the old meanings of tradition. And this produces in them a state of high self-consciousness. They are immensely open both to good and to evil. In such a situation, the best of them turn to the life of philosophy. They herald, in some sense, the dawn of the age of reason in North America. This passage, in a sense, was a prophecy, a prophecy which would be realized in the philosophical ambitions of the youth movements of the 60s. But by then, Grant had turned away from the extravagant hopes of his youth. Hegel, he would soon conclude, was wrong. What the modern world was really heading for was not universal liberation, but a universal tyranny, ruled over by the twin gods of technology and empire. He would sound this theme for the first time in Lament for a Nation. An artist sent me the other day a painting he'd done of Grandfather Grant, and he'd painted it because his granddad had told him that he used to set aside a dozen eggs a week to give to queens, you know, the proceeds, you know, and this was a big sacrifice to this fellow's granddad. George Grant's roots are in an older Canada, a Canada in which a dozen eggs would still have meant something to Queen's University. It was the passing of this Canada that Grant would mourn in his lament for a nation. Canada had become part of the American Empire, and for Grant, this meant that we had sacrificed one of life's great goods, the chance to engage in a politics with real consequences. When the practical life of their society is not possible for people, that is a terrible loss. I was talking earlier of the polis. This is what was meant, that everybody in the society should have a chance to take authentic action, that is, activity that really matters. And in great empires like the North American and the Russian, one loses it. And this is surely a great condemnation of the modern, isn't it? It belongs to human beings as human beings to take part in the life of their society. Lament for a Nation announced in unequivocal terms the end of Canada as a sovereign state. This sometimes led readers to assume that Grant had despaired of Canadian politics altogether. But in politics, Grant has always followed Sir Thomas More's great axiom, if you can't get the best to happen, prevent the worst. And on that basis, he continued to be involved in public affairs. In the 1950s and early 60s, Grant had had some small involvement with the NDP. After the controversy over nuclear arms for Canada in 1963, he angrily rejected the NDP for ganging up with the Liberals against Diefenbaker. He became a Conservative. Ladies and gentlemen, the Progressive Conservative Party of Canada invites you to join the distinguished Canadian philosopher George Grant, whose book, Lament for a Nation, has aroused thinking people from all political parties, and the Right Honorable John Diefenbaker. On the question of national unity, Mr. Diefenbaker, what do you think has gone wrong in the last two and a half years? That's very difficult to define. However, I think one of the reasons... Grant saw in the Conservative Party a defense of the rights of community and country against a liberal philosophy of purely individual rights. 
his conservatism was rooted in a conception of the common good. Sometimes this led to his being described as a red Tory. He never accepted the term, but he did recognize that in Canada, conservatives have often had to behave like socialists in the interests of national survival. I think it was true that when you take the CBC itself, it was founded by Bennett. When you take probably one of the great saving instruments of Ontario, the Ontario Hydro, for all its faults, it was Sir Richard Whitney. I mean, I greatly resent the identification of the word conservative with the right of individuals to make money any way they want. I mean, that surely is liberalism incarnate, the freeing of private enterprise and everything like that. I think Canada, to exist in the northern half of this continent, had to preserve certain indigenous institutions. I mean, it is very clear that the CBC, you know, that if you don't have a national broadcasting system in Canada, if you don't have a lot of public things of this kind, Canada will just cease to exist altogether, even what's left of it. And I don't like the word red Tory for this very much. But, you know, if, if one goes into the public world, anybody can call you anything, and I think quite rightly. You know, I don't want to stop anybody calling me, do you see what I mean? I just don't think it's accurate. Whatever it's called, there's certainly something striking in Grant's conservatism, which can be both anti-imperialist and, in some cases, anti-capitalist. For Gad Horowitz, this unlikely conjuncture of Toryism and radicalism in Grant's political views reflects something of Canada's unique position in the world. Not only do we not find this in the United States, we don't find it anywhere else uh, to any very significant extent. I mean, there may be people in Europe who can criticize capitalism from a Tory point of view, but they're much weirder and much more eccentric in Europe than Grant is here. There's something really unique about a conservative philosopher who's at the same time radical uh, in a way that makes leftists fond of him and at the same time someone who represents the integrity uh, of a people, the English Canadians, in the way that Grant does. You know, Thorsten Veblen once wrote an essay about marginal peoples like the Jews, uh, who because of their location, simultaneously inside and outside of their host peoples, were able to see things that couldn't be seen from other perspectives or from other locations. A German Jew, like Karl Marx, for example, being simultaneously thoroughly German and thoroughly alien to the Germans from another point of view. I think there's something marginal about the English-Canadian identity in North America, that our identity is so American that we participate so deeply in modernity, more, more deeply than any other people except for the Americans, and at the same time we're not American that expresses itself in the thought of someone like Grant, who can raise questions of modernity in such a way that at the same time they involve the question of, of who we are as a people, who we are as Canadians. It seems to me unequivocally true that the United States are committing genocide in Vietnam. Now, that, that is a very hard thing for a person who is English-speaking by origin to say, because you are saying about people who are in some sense your own that they are committing this terrible crime. 
But that, that is the position they are in. They have decided to demolish this people if it, if it will not do what, what they want. But mind you, let me say, I think that Canadians will be willing to pay this price. I think rather than not be members of the affluent society, they would be quite willing to have genocide in Asia. Now, I think what one has to raise George Grant, addressing a teach-in in Edmonton now, in 1966. Grant was an early opponent of the Vietnam War and soon developed an affinity with the students who were protesting Canadian complicity. But although Grant was broadly sympathetic to the New Left's critique of North American society, he differed in his assessment of whether anything very much could be done about the situation. He made these differences plain in an address to a packed arena at the University of Toronto in 1965. I find myself in agreement with the accounts the leaders of this movement give of the inhumanity of the institutions of North America. How can a conservative not feel sympathy with their outrage against the emptiness and dehumanization that this society produces? But when the new left speaks of overcoming these conditions by protest, I think they are indulging in dreams, and I think this arises from a profound misinterpretation of modern history. Now, I am not advocating inaction or cynicism. Nothing I have said... Nothing I have said denies for one moment the nobility of protest. Nothing I have said denies that justice is good and that injustice is evil and that it is required of human beings to know the difference between the two. To live with courage in the world is always better than retreat or disillusion. But what I am arguing against is the politics based on easy hopes about the future human situation. Hope in the future has been the chief opiate of modern life. Demagogues on both sides of the Cold War peddled that opiate to justify every act of immoderation. Its danger is that it prevents men from looking clearly at their situation. If people have vast expectations of hope about a society such as ours, they are going to be disappointed, and then their moral fervor can turn rancid and bitter. Moral fervor is too precious a commodity not to be put into the service of reality. It's The great advantage of meeting Grant at that point was like the advantage of having two eyes instead of one. When you have one eye, you see everything, but you have no perspective. You don't have depth vision. You don't have 3D. This is novelist Matt Cohen, who became a friend of George Grant's as a student at the University of Toronto in the 1960s, and later taught for a year in Grant's Department of Religion at McMaster. I met him, as I said, originally at this uh, meeting of political activists. I was one of the political activists. And uh, we got into a conversation after the formal meeting, which was, the meeting itself was quite ridiculous. And as with other, many other students who met him at the time, I was very impressed by his uh, willingness or even eagerness to take what I said seriously. Because this, as I say, was his method, really, of, of teaching, was to take, make people take what they thought seriously and therefore possibly think different things and examine the conclusions. His whole method of teaching and of discourse was not to say what was right and what was wrong, although he certainly had his own thoughts on these questions. But it was a much more of a, in his own inimitable fashion, a sort of a Greek approach to things where he believed that people should lead themselves to this, 
because he believed that what was right and wrong was within people, within every person, because that was his view of what people were. To him, the business of living and the business of philosophy were the same thing. And I think that that was one of the things that made him so attractive to students, because they felt that, in a sense, he was saying to them that the most important thing that you've got is your life and how you live it. Almost my favorite remark of the 20th century is Abby Hoffman's account of liberalism. God is dead and we did it for the kids. Now, I, I think that is just one of the marvelous remarks of, of the 20th century. And I, it was a great liberation for me that these, these people seemed to me to be saying the truth. I didn't very much like the pretensions of the Kennedy regime very much. You see, it, means it seemed to me exalting a certain kind of Americanism in a, in a very, and trying to sort of pretty it up with Jackie in the front row, do you see? I didn't like this. And the, that these people, these young people could see these immediate social questions with, with such practicality and sense made me love them, that's all. Strauss once said, and I think it is the best thing I've ever known about teaching, ever said about teaching. He said, never go into a class without thinking that there is somebody in the classroom who has a greater intelligence and a nobler heart than yourself. That nearly... That remark is so good that it produced me. You know, I think it's a marvel, you know, and I think if you don't like the young, for God's sake, don't be paid a lot of money to teach them, Junior, or if you're bored with it. I mean, many people can be bored. I, I'm at the point where I won't retire. I don't want to teach at the moment. I want to write and think and read things that I've never read. And I have, you know, at 67, I have a right to do that. But I don't, um, I think if you're teaching the young in all their variety and all their difference, one must love them or else, what the hell, why do it? I think I just felt like part of a, as Grant made many people feel, part of the sort of large extended family of those, you know, who enjoyed um, their hospitality, the good conversation. He was a great um, lover of opera, which at that time I had regarded as uh, something completely from outer space, practically. He also was the first person that ever got me to read Henry James, which I eventually actually developed quite a taste for. but. Uh, the first book was quite a shock. He's a very advocate. He was a, actually a great reader of fiction. I mean, it was almost like his place was almost like a salon in some very positive sense. In the sense that a lot of people just came and went from there, and he, during certain hours, was very willing to receive guests, to have conversation, etc. And his wife was very much a part of that too. It wasn't just him. I mean, she, she equally was a great listener, a terrific talker. The home where Matt Cohen visited Sheila and George Grant was in Dundas, Ontario, 
near Hamilton, where Grant headed the Department of Religion at McMaster University. While at McMaster, Grant had written a number of essays which extended the themes he had first taken up in Lament for a Nation. Poet Dennis Lee had been impressed by these essays and urged Grant to collect them. Lee was one of the founders of the House of Anansi, a small Toronto press, and through his initiative as an editor, the volume of essays which came out under the title of Technology and Empire gradually took shape. It was published in 1969. The book was in existence and was in the stores and it had basically much wider reviews than a little press like House of Anansi could normally hope for. So I was just walking on air. I mean, Dinky Little House of Anansi, which did experimental fiction and unknown poets, had somehow become the vehicle for this uh, towering work of thought. Uh, we hadn't totally blown the conducting the thing into print. Uh, to my mind, it was, without being really adequately informed on the subject, one of the major works of thought of the later 20th century. Anansi was in the basement of an old house then, uh, beside a furnace that didn't work. And I was sitting down there one day, and the phone rang. And this voice started, uh, Dennis, um, I was I was going to ask you if... Uh, uh, Dennis, it's George. Uh, uh, George Grant. And what I was thought I'd... Dennis, there was a thing I was... Uh, Dennis, do you remember that little book of mine you published a while ago? <laughs> and I just sat there. Again, I didn't know whether to laugh or cry. The, the little book of his that we'd published a while ago, I did in fact remember. It was called Technology and Empire. And uh, so again, we went on from there. But much of the spirit that the man lives with was summed up in that, I thought. Technology and Empire made much clearer what had only been implied in Lament for a Nation. Grant now argued that technology had become a comprehensive fate for the modern world, a fate which cut people off from their ability to know and to love what is intrinsically good. Openness to the world had given way to an attitude based on control. This attitude came first from Europe, but it was in North America that it achieved its most complete expression. Clearly its intellectual origins were in Europe and people like Descartes, Baker, you know, you can... And the, and the first beginning of what people call the Industrial Revolution in England, etc., etc., etc. But then why was it so magnificently incarnated in North America? I think a great book, for all its theoretical failings, is Weber's book, Protestantism and the Spirit of Capitalism. I really think it, it shows you why, why there is something frenetic in Protestantism. Do you know what I mean? To get things done and to control the world. I think it was also the pioneering fact. I was reading the other day of a, one of my mother's relations who wrote a book about early New Brunswick. And... Um, they didn't kill people, but they had to eat human flesh. You know, in the early days of New Brunswick, he just says it uh, quite... You see, because, uh, you know, the, they'd been thrown out of the U.S. They're thrown into a very pioneering place without much support from the British government. They nearly starved to death. Therefore, when people died, they had to do it. You know, now I'm not saying that all pioneering society was like this, but a lot of pioneering society 
was mighty tough, and nobody should forget that, you know, or be, or be soft about that, you know. I mean, and not recognize the greatness. There was the terrible side of things that were done to the Indians and things, but there's something magnificent and grand about the opening of of, of North America by pioneering Protestants, is there not? And, and this led, you know, this led people to be immensely practical. This practicality led North Americans to embrace technology in a particularly uncritical way. But what Grant means by technology is not simply a way of doing things. In this sense, human beings have always had technology. He means a way of being which is new in history, a way of standing apart from nature in order to control it, a way which virtually defines the modern world. Subjectivity and objectivity are the great language of modernity. When you see something objectively, you hold it over against you, away from you. You see, it is not something you can love. Let me quote who would be very high authority for me. Mozart. His account of what it is to compose is an account of being given wholes. You know, he talks about a composition being given to him all at one moment. You know, all in one look, as he says. Now, anything beautiful cannot be for us an object. Anything loved cannot be for us an object. You see, that's why I brought in Mozart, because of the beauty of the world. Because his art is the very form to me of, of the beauty of the world. Now, this language has been remarkably useful to modern natural science and to modern moral science. But it's a language that I now want to get rid of. in the coming to be of technological society, certain things were found, but many things of great importance and illumination and happiness for human beings were lost. People have said antiquarianism about me, but we don't look at the past for antiquarian reasons. We look at the past to see if in looking at its thought and its art, we can see things that have been lost and that we need for this very present moment of our existing. I remember an old railway worker, a man who drove engines for the old um, Hamilton Buffalo Railway. He was, an, I used to go fishing with this man, a very nice man. And I said, what do, you, uh, what do you really think of Buffalo? And he said, oh, a great place. I've got a great place to stay there overnight. But he said, I wouldn't want to be buried there. Now, that was, uh, that's about what I feel. <laughs> you know what I mean?
On Ideas tonight, you've been listening to the first program in a three-part intellectual biography of Canadian philosopher George Grant. Grant's great difference was his incredible generosity. The energy of his generosity, because he really has, is a person who has the vocation of a teacher. And not only that, I think he genuinely does see, often see, what is best in people. And that catalyzes an energy in them that responds to him. And I think that's why he has had such a great effect on people, on so many people. And yet they're not really influenced by him. They don't become mini George Grants. But somehow he lights a fire under people. I think that's what uh, great teachers do. These three programs on the ideas of George Grant are written and presented by David Cayley with production by Damiano Pietropaolo. Archival research by Ken Pewley, technical operations Lorne Tulk, production assistant Alison Moss. George Grant was recorded at his home in Halifax by Rod Snedden. The three programs in this series will be available as printed transcripts for $5. You can get them by sending a request to George Grant, CBC Enterprises, Box 500, Station A, Toronto, M5W, 1E6. Don't forget a money order or personal check for $5, and please be prepared to wait about six weeks for delivery. There's also a reading list that goes with this series, and you can get that free as usual. You write to Ideas, Box 500, Station A, Toronto, M5W, 1E6. Join us again next week at the same time when we'll examine the development of George Grant's political philosophy. For Ideas, I'm Lister Sinclair. Good night.